What's in the bag? A shark or something? Put the bunny back in the box. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. You are listening to one of the last three quick cages of all time. Um, Frank, uh, which cage movie or movies are you going to tell us about tonight? So uh, this um, semi-penultimate, I guess, version of the quick cage is Anti- um, dedicated. Anti-penultimate, yeah. Whatever. Um, dedicated to uh, Jason Heaster. Uh, without whom this quick cage would not have occurred. Um, and while there's still two more episodes after this, we're actually talking about the very last movie in Nick Cage's current filmography that I need to watch to have watched them all. Um, so 1986's The Boy in Blue. So you are um, so you are done watching all of the Cage movies then? I have seen every single Nick Cage movie ever. Fascinating. Yes, I know. You would think we would have saved this for last, but whatever. I mean, we got to talk about Captain Crowley's mandolin last, so yes. Um, I was so really, about- I was really hoping. Just real quick, I was really hoping it was going to be the card because I keep so about halfway through the quick cage, I started keeping a word document with all of his movies, and I highlight them every single week. And I was really hoping it was going to be the cartoons. Oh, sorry, cartoons, uh, animated movies, um, so I could highlight all these fucking movies and get them off this list but um i guess that'll be next week so i'll just have to have to live with it all right just so you know i don't want to do that episode so it's like i'm not in my fucking stomach like (laughs) thinking about having to i if if we're being quite honest i don't want to listen to that episode (laughs) but we'll do it next week and um get through it do the thing try and make entertaining i guess hmm um, All right. So, what about this movie? I have I don't know shit about this movie except for Ned Hanlon directed it because I've seen this motherfucker. No, no, name. no. Oh, Ned he Hanlon played didn't direct it. He, he played Ned Hanlon. Okay. All right. Leave the leave the descriptions to to the professionals here, buddy. <laughs> um, so, directed by Charles Jarrett, uh, also starring uh, Christopher Plummer, David Naughton, some other people that you wouldn't know. Um, it's a biopic based on famed scholar um ned hanlon that's who cage plays so this is actually one of the first movies in several weeks i would say where cage is like the actual star of the movie um we've been getting a lot of things where he's like either a supporting character or just a minor character but um it's all cage all the time in uh the boy in blue frank, frank real quick what is this i i don't I, i've heard that term before but i actually don't know what it is what is a scholar? Uh, it's somebody who rose crew. So crew is um, the sport where people sit in really long, thin boats and have two oars and they row against each other. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Um, now, had you had you not have known what crew was, when you start this movie, there's a big text um, block at the beginning that says... Um, before there was football, before there was baseball, before there was basketball, uh, 
the greatest sport on earth was crew and this is a story of the men who wrote it or something on it's terrible um so had you have told me before watching this movie or had you asked me before watching this movie can you make an interesting movie about men rowing boats and i would have said no and as it turns out i would have been right um because like 40 minutes of this fucking movie is just shots of people rowing these long thin boats and discussions about the prowess of the men that row these boats and the mechanics of the boats themselves um so like yeah half the movie is completely uninteresting unless you're absolutely fascinated by the idea of men rowing boats in the water um so Ned Hanlon is a bootlegger in Canada in the, I don't know when it takes place, sometime turn of the century, uh, Jesus, it feels like it's like the late 18, early 1900s. Anyway, alcohol is um, illegal at that time in Canada, and Ned is this guy that delivers the alcohol to people um, and is able to get away from the cops really fast because everything's on the water and he can row his boat faster than anybody. Um, so he catches the eye of this promoter's manager guy, um, who's like, Hey, you're an amazing rower. Like, I want you to come to Philadelphia with me and win the United States championship for rowing. And Ed Hanlon's like, nah, dude, like, I just want to deliver this booze and fuck this chick. And so then the promoter like arranges for the cops basically to arrest him. So he has to escape in his his boat. And then the guy's like, ah, gotcha. Like, now that you're wanted by the law in your, in your town, like, you just come to America with me and, like, row in Philadelphia. And then Hanlon's like, ah, you're rascal. Um, but then he does it. <clears throat> so one of the things you need to note about this movie is that Nicolas Cage is playing a French-Canadian man with the accent of a SoCal, like, valley boy. So... He's saying things like bugger off and blimey and um, I don't know, you cheeky bastard. But uh-huh. like he's in Valley Girl, like, oh, you cheeky bastard. Oh, blimey. Which is it's amazing, to be honest with you. Like there's it's almost surreal in like how ridiculous it is. Um. So anyway, so they go to Philly and the whole thing is that they're going to race um in this fucking boat race on the Schuylkill River. So I guess there's some local like connection there. Mm. Maybe. Um if you care about the Schuylkill. Um <laughs> so he wins that race, but you gotta watch the whole race and like a lot of this like camera on the prow of the boat. I don't know how boats work, but on the part of the boat that like the crew person is facing toward because they're rowing backwards um so it's a lot of shots of nicholas cage's goofy ass face like as he's rowing so you can imagine the thrill of like those scenes Mm -hmm. um and they go on forever and he wins you know so it's like hey now he's this famous sculler whatever um so that's where uh that's where Christopher Plummer steps in, who's this devious um, robber. I don't know. Robber Baron is not the right term. He's just like 
rich like landed gentry type guy that's really into rowing so he wants to buy nicholas cage to sponsor him so he uses his niece to like woo nicholas cage nicholas cage falls in love with her um so then he's like winning like rowing tournaments all over the place and like oh man ned hanlon he's the guy to beat but then this dude who's got like a posse it's like I know you're not familiar with Pokemon, but it's like Team Rocket, kind of. Like, they have these matching jumpsuits and shit. Okay. And, like, he's the best rower in the world, and he holds the European Rowing Championship or something. So mm-hmm. they're going to, like... I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, this is very, like, akin to, like, a wrestling promo. Sort of, like a like a, like a storyline where Nicolas Cage, he's the U.S. champ, but then this tall, like, super muscular guy comes from Germany right that's got like one cross eye so he's like zeus kind of and he's like the european champ okay. and it's like title versus title they're gonna race this race gotcha okay um you've 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 interested me five percent more than i was already well only because i'm using trickery to get you there <laughs> um so they're gonna race and like there's this i don't know it, it's so it's so stupid it's such a bad movie all right it's like um, a race or is there like montage is there montages in this they're gonna no 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 <laughs> just watching some races okay. so they're gonna race and the big burly guy is basically like talking shit to nick cage the whole time like he's smack talking like as they're racing mm-hmm. because nick cage is just barely behind him so Nick Cage gets mad and rams his boat into that guy's boat and causes them both to wreck. And then Nick Cage gets banned from sculling forever. Like he gets thrown out of the sport by this um uh like star chamber of old men with handlebar mustaches talking about the sanctity of, of crew and how he'll never race in the United States again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so then um turns out that Denise like she likes Nick Cage a little bit, so she's like, "Hey, I just want to let you know that I was only doing what my uncle told me to do. I'm actually getting married next week." And so he's all upset because he really likes her. He's in love with her, he says. Mm-hmm. So he basically goes, and they don't really show this happen, but it's like he's all despondent, but then he's fucking this girl, okay, like in his loft apartment above like this uh, lighthouse or i don't even know what the fuck it is it's like this weird taller than it is wide house on the water um so then her uncle comes and he's like hey i got this idea um like you can't race to the united states but i think you can beat the you know the german machine so we're gonna go to london and you're gonna race on the thames Mm. and he's like oh I don't want to do that. And he's like, I think you should do it. And all the while, his niece is like hiding behind this armoire or whatever, like all naked. Okay. And Nick Cage is like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. And so then they go to London and they do that. And the next morning, so before they go to London, the next morning, Nick Cage marries the guy's niece. And so that happens. And then the guy's like, oh, my niece. And then they go to London and then Nick Cage wins. And Ned Hanlon, he's a legend of crewing right Finn. so it's a movie with a whole lot of people in boats rowing boats mm-hmm. and some roustaboutery you know because nick cage is like this 
burly working class dude that captures the hearts of Canada um because he can row a boat really well and that's what you're supposed to like fix to let me say this like I I talked about and th- this came up last week when we were talking about um what was last week cotton club is that right yes 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 so we were talking about this last week when I was saying about my no, that wasn't last week, was it? Yeah, tap dancing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're oh right, right, right. Because yeah, all right. So we we're talking about like my least favorite genres of movies or whatever. That was two weeks ago, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So oh right, because every fucking movie has been the same now. This goddamn <laughs> fucking a look to the past. Like I don't know, movies about sports that nobody care about is like a whole subgenre unto itself and maybe my least favorite thing to watch. Mm. Like, I don't understand why. And I know that there's like people who will probably jump up like, oh my God, crew, it's it's so amazing. It's the purest sport. Same thing about fucking riding a bicycle or riding a goddamn horse or running for a <laughs> long time. Like, uh-huh. it's fucking dumb. Like, nobody cares about these sports in real life. The God. movie even admitted that this sport was only cool until real sports were invented. It's like, hey, before real sports were here, there was this, and people kind of liked it. And you're like, yeah. Like, you got me for 93 minutes, William Blue. Canadians are um, apparently, from what I understand, just, like, quickly scanning this movie and, like, some reviews. Canadians weren't happy um, with this movie, especially for the casting of Cage, because, um, well, because they care, they still care about this shit, <laughs> apparently, because he's a national hero. <clears throat> And they didn't like that, like, Cage was, like, you know, put in this role to, um, because look, 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 you, you've seen the image, right, on the poster of this movie? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I, I've seen I've this. I've seen it all. Right. I've seen this fucking thing for, I don't know how many fucking months now, like, off and on. Like, as I look and see, what is that movie again? Like, oh, right, that's the, like, the, the Pumping Iron movie or whatever, I think, in my mind. I would have never, from the images associated with this, you can go to Wikipedia and see the poster of this for um, whatever, this, the boy in blue. It looks like it's like a weightlifting movie or something. Or like oh, no, it is. That's a big part of it. So a big part of the movie, there, uh, yes, if there was a montage, there is one montage in the middle of this movie. And it's Nick Cage half undressed, working out in unorthodox ways. Like doing weird yoga exercises and lifting weird weights and well look okay look in the stable maybe look at this okay look oh, at this. I know it. look at well look at these dumbbells right these are like mo- these look like modern dumbbells like look how sh- shiny they are like you know like and and like these whatever pants he's wearing they look like modern pants from the poster and this little like fucking headband it looks like something straight out of the 80s i think it's false advertising well it is a straight out of the 80s because 1986 well, I understand, Look, but I'm saying it's supposed to be set in the turn of the century. That's pulling in the ladies, buddy, with that, um, you know, his his muscular uh, yeah, physique sure. and his chiseled chest. Yeah. Um, it's a big part of the movie is seeing him shirtless. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's 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 what they're trying to, like, pull you in on. It's like, oh, we're women in with this. And then the niece you see her bosom um now, who, like who plays the oh, niece in this i don't fucking know what the woman's name is something 
Is the niece like the female lead? Well, there's two female leads. So there's there's this woman. There's this he's screwing in the beginning of the movie. Oh, and you know how we always make fun of that sex scene in um, Phantasm? Mm -hmm. Where Reggie's got the girl on top and then her boobs turn into orbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually just watching that last night. Yeah, There's almost the exact same sex scene in this movie, minus the um, Phantasm. (laughs) Where this woman is sitting on top of him with her knees against his thighs, and she's like lunging forward and backward with all of her clothes on. So, like, her butt is going towards his feet up in the air, mm-hmm. and then coming forward with her bosom up in the air towards his head. And she's screaming, and he's going, oh, 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 like that. And, like, it goes on for 60 seconds of this mm-hmm. shit. Where there's obviously no penetration possible at all with what's occurring because everyone has their clothes on. Mm-hmm. But her top is a little undone, but her boobs are now. It's just like her top is undone. Okay. And then the police come to get him because that's when the the CAD manager or whatever has like set him up to like get chased out of town. And it basically implies that he finished inside her and it was like satisfying for both of them. And then he runs away. Okay. But like he's he's waiting until the police are right there before he does that because you know Nick Cage can't leave a lady unsatisfied. Right. Um right. So then later there's this like romantic scene where he's like exposing her bosom, but he never touches her bosom. He just kind of rubs her like rib cage on the uh-huh. side. And then they've had sex after that. And then she says Oh my god, I almost forgot about this. I'm so glad that we're talking about this really awkward shit. <laughs> um, she says, well, I'm a compromised woman. I always wondered what it would feel like to be compromised. And he was like, oh, does it feel good? And she was like, yeah, you need to compromise me again. Yeah. So yes. the other great part about this movie, and by great, I mean fucking like grating and awful. Um Imagine the Disney movies from like the late 70s, early 80s, like shit like the Shaggy Dog and Parent Trap, whatever. I know that's like earlier than that, but yeah, yeah, where there would be like this jaunty soundtrack like occurring throughout the entire movie. Mm -hmm. That is this movie, except instead of a score, it's like 42 different pieces of music that are played at different times where the music is never not playing in the movie. So no matter what's happening, there's like a shit going on. Except in the very beginning when he's racing his first race where the promoter guy sees him, where it's like a techno soundtrack, Mm. like an 80s electronica. So that's Mm. real weird. But then the rest of it is like public domain ragtime. That's what I would call (laughs) the style of music. And that's just what you get throughout the entire movie. And it never stops. Like, you don't like always... you don't you don't like ragtime. There's always music in there. Um, the uh, you don't like ragtime either, right? I don't know. I mean, what the fuck? You always make who fun like, of. I've always likes... I've never heard you positively sit there and say anything about that kind of music. Like you, I think you hate old music, like from like the late like basically like the very late 1800s to the early like I would say 40s. Oh like, no. There's plenty of like blues and stuff I like that's before then. I, I think like, you, um, I, 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 like, I think I like some big band stuff too. Mm, okay. But I don't like it in the context that people use it. Like it's fine once in a while just to hear it, but like 
like the motherfucking Cotton Club. Like, I don't need to hear fucking Mammy or I don't know. Fuck all that shit. And I did, especially this goddamn bargain basement, you know, Tin Pan Alley nonsense where I got to like listen to some fucking like clangy piano and jaunty fucking oboe or whatever is like Nick Cage is rowing another goddamn boat across another goddamn river that looks the same as every other scene in the movie where he's doing that shit. Uh, it was really annoying. And I kept thinking like, why is there so much music in this movie? And it's like, cause you know, when you're watching a movie that has a score, like the score refers back to itself. So you get like elements of different parts of the, you know, the entire suite that like reference itself. And it like calls back to previous scenes Right. And it builds like the steam until finally you get like the swelling crescendo at the end where the score all comes together. Like it's it's a great part of like really of movies that like utilize music well, right? Because it doesn't have to be like actual songs. It's just it's a score. Like right. again, this isn't a score. This is like some guy went into a fucking I don't know like like music for beginner store and which is like pulling sheet music out everywhere. It's like, all right, this is this scene. This is this scene. Ah. Right. And then they just played it. And then that's what you get. So suffice it to say that for being the last Nick Cage movie <clears throat> I'll ever watch until the next Nick Cage movie that I have to watch. Um, it was pretty fitting, I guess. Yeah. It sounds it. So the reason I was asking you about, okay, so I, I figured it out myself. So the niece that you're talking about is played by Cynthia Dale, who you know because she's the second female lead in My Bloody Valentine. Um, okay. Um, she's also in, and I don't know if you know this movie, there's a movie called Heavenly Bodies from like 1985. Yeah, I know it. Okay. Um, which as I was looking at that, because it was like, oh shit, I forgot about that movie. That movie was on like Max or HBO or something. They would show it back in the day. So I've like seen it at some point when I was a child. But I looked it up. The person who um directed that movie is a guy named Lawrence Dane, who we have discussed on the podcast before because he plays the Keller character, uh Brandon Keller in Scanners. <laughs> Which is a weird fucking thing that he won and directed this movie about a woman running a dance studio and shit, shit like that. But um, the other um, woman in this is Melody Anderson, who is the main female lead in Flash Gordon and Dead and Buried and Firewalker with um, Louis Gossett Jr. And, um, She's Chuck Dale Holmes. Arden? Huh? She's Dale Arden? You said Flash Gordon? Yeah. Yeah. She is not Dale Arden. Yeah. Melody Anderson. Not 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 Cynthia, not the niece, the other female lead. Like in the Yeah, like I know a, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, she's Dale Arden. Yeah. I just typed in flash hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> what what came up? I want to know. What was the, the... No, I already erased it. It's gone. <laughs> Funny though. Flash hot dog. I don't want to see flash hot dog. Uh, there is a place in California in Brawley, California called Flash Dogs. That is the first search. The next, the, the next link is from Gizmodo.com. <clears throat> we have to talk about Justice League's hot dog moment. Um, that's oh, yeah, that is her, and she's in uh, oh, yeah, weird, 
mentioned a couple movies I like a lot. We have never talked about my undying love for Flash Gordon. Oh right, yeah, no, it's we we will someday. Um, we'll we'll have to do like an episode of like the movies that Chris never wants to talk about, <laughs> never wants to talk about. Um, we'll just get them all done in one episode. Um, we'll, we'll do shit. I should just make the list and we'll watch them because you love all those movies probably. Like, um, I'll just make the top five <laughs> Larry Gasberry movies. Um and get really drunk like um watching them and then doing the podcast as I have to talk about all the movies my dad used to love growing up because you love the same ones. So it's it's Remo Williams. Yep. Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Conan, even though we've already talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I've talked about it. Yeah, but we could do the other Conan. I don't know if you like that or not though. The Destroyer? Yeah. I like it for like he, a kiss. He he liked too. both of them. He watched them both all the time. Conan the Destroyer has some really great moments in it, but not nearly the movie that Conan the Barbarian is. Buckaroo Banzai? He did watch Buckaroo Banzai, yeah. I, although I don't mind Buckaroo Banzai as much. Um, <clears throat> well, you just re- you watched it recently, right? A couple, years, the past ago, couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, Escape from New York, you used to watch a lot. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Escape from New York. I'm not gonna. I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd, it's, it's fine, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about it. But like, um, that sci-fi, like Flash Gordon-esque type shit. Like he, um, he loved that stuff. Buck um, Rogers in the 25th century. Uh oh yeah, he fucking loved Buck Rogers. Yeah, um, always used to watch Buck Rogers when it was on like TBS or something. And then, uh, Rayhausen movies. Harryhausen. Harryhausen. Ray Ray Harryhausen, yeah, those fucking things. Whatever the fuck, like I fucking hate those movies. I think you know I hate those movies, but he used to watch them all the time too. Well, you hate. Oh, you know what it would be, Clash of the Titans. Mm. He liked that shit too, like that Spartacus. Like he like he liked all Love that Clash shit. of the Titans. Mm. Yeah, that's Harry it's Hamlin, funny, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny you put Spartacus in the same um, conversation as Clash of the Titans. I, I wonder it's how many times that's. That's happened in the history of the world. It's all ancient Greek Rome bullshit that like is done in like, you know, this like I, I don't I don't mind Gladiator so much because there's a ruggedness to it, but when it's done in these like bright kind of you know obvious stage settings where like nothing looks real and everything's ugh, I can't stand it. I know O loves Spartacus. I know you like Spartacus, but like, fuck, fuck that shit. I can't deal with that. You like Ben Hur? Fuck no. <clears throat> God damn, buddy. You um, you need you, you need you need a therapist. You need a Spartacus therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 gonna definitely put Clash of the Titans on the list someday to make you watch that shit. I I love Clash of the Titans. I like the Jason and the Argonauts movie and like the Sinbad movie. Oh my god, yes, he watched all that shit too. Yeah, all that stuff is so good. Ugh. Ugh. Don't oh that's that's really bad memory. You, as soon as you said Jason and the Argonauts, I like put that movie out of my mind. Jesus. Yeah, well maybe we can do that. Maybe what we can do is like, you know, it's like a month of Chris, but it's like, you know, it's like the movies that you hate <laughs> that that I'll make you watch and then um, all the movies that you like that um your top five Larry Gasperi movies like I mean shit, we'll just watch a Ray Harryhausen uh film festival. 
Get some get some clash in there. Get some Jason and the Argonauts. Mm. Yeah, I'm 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 excited. So this guy seems pretty maligned as director for this movie. This um, Jarrett? Uh, yeah, Charles Jarrett. Um, like, like people do not seem to like him. Um, I didn't much. bother to look him up and see if I had um ever seen anything else. Uh, he does have Oscar nominations. Mary Queen of Scots, um, which is a type of movie that you would probably never want to watch. Um, Vanessa Redgrave is the star. But is Lost Horizon the one where they're in the snow? It's an adventure fantasy musical film with Peter Finch. Um airplane hijacked while fleeing by your pollution crashes and himalayas yeah so yeah you're right in the snow yeah, i've seen that movie it's really bad yeah so there was um there was a book that i owned in high school called the 50 worst movies of all time <laughs> um and that was one of them and i made it a point to watch like as many of those movies as i could find hmm. but here's a secret about that book and fuck that book for this reason they had last year Miriam Bad on that list, and that's one of my favorite movies of all time. So mm. that just goes to show that they have no taste, right? Oh my god, he directed Condor Man. Oh no shit. Have you ever seen Condor Man? I don't think so. Yeah, you need to see Condor Man. Condor Man eighty one. Um, let me look at this. No, I don't know this. You don't remember that? Um, you don't remember that poster? I I, I do remember that poster, but I, I don't. I never seen this movie. I don't think if maybe it's like one of those things where look, dude, I watched the 2016 Blair Witch last night and re- realized that I, you were right, and I watched it a year ago. Um, who knows? I watched it last night too, and I had never seen it before. So I one of us. I'm old, and I drink too much anymore. Who knows? I. It, it... I don't remember seeing this movie, but it could be one of those things where it's like I've seen pieces of it, like when I was a kid. And oh my, yeah, you all right? Are you choking to death? I spoke ill of Condor Man. It's coming back to get me. Yeah, it's the back. It's, 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 it's the booster shot. It's just killing you now. Like they were all right all along. That's fine. Um... <laughs> good work um... tomorrow. <laughs> because you'll be dead um, if i died if i died right now what would happen to the quick cage would you finish it with someone else um oh jesus i i that's not the kind of things i think of like um if i, I, die I, the- I know the podcast like itself would would end i would probably do like a wrap-up um like episode like for them for the regular podcast like um but um do you eulogize me? Yeah, yeah, I would. And then um you- I, I probably have I probably have our, our co-host from the best 30 minutes um um on to like you know talk about the podcast and everything like that. And um but may- maybe what I would do is if that happened the last episode, we'd do that and maybe I would try to divine your top five favorite movies of all time. Um and talk about those some. Um I think I'd like a Ouija pro- board. I think if I look through your list, I could guess them, but um, um, kind of. But <clears throat> some yeah, of my I favorite can... movies of all time we've never talked about on a podcast. Yeah, well, um, but for the quick cage, oh, that'd be hard. I think I'd have to finish it for you at that point. Like, 
I think I have to watch Captain Corelli's. Oh no, fuck you! Don't die because I have to watch all the damn animated all the, movies, all the voiceover work. That's yeah. your biggest fuck over of all time if you did that to me. Uh, right, it's like thirty movies it's or something like that. Like seven. <laughs> it's like thirty. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've seen Condor Man. Um, at all. It's not very good. Morning Glory, I believe that I have seen somehow um, with Christopher Reeve. Because isn't that like one of his last movies before he like paralyzed mm. himself? Um, yeah, it is. It's one of his last movies before he does that. Um, uh, I think I have Wait seen that. I think... down, <laughs> That's what I'm good at. Um, <clears throat> All right, so what's the fucking score on this movie and on Cage's performance? Do you want to talk about some other stuff first? Okay. We can still talk about other stuff if you want to talk about other stuff, but I, just let's get these scores out of the way. Um, there is something I want to ask you about, but it, it hasn't. It's too unrelated to movies, like to some degree. I feel like it's unfair to give this movie a one because there are legit, like, some nice shots of um you know rivers and trees and like trees that are next to rivers uh uh-huh. that 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 looks nice it's kind of pastoral you know or whatever mm-hmm. um but it's probably a one it it's really almost unwatchable um and it was torture last night watching this on my laptop in the dark and knowing that I had to keep watching it because we had, I wanted to do it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, his performance is probably also a one because it's so unbelievable that he's right. a rough and tumble Canadian liquor runner, like turned crewing celebrity. Cause he's talking like this the whole time. Mm-hmm. Golly, blimey, you bilge rat. Yeah, <laughs> it's awful. Okay, and it's weird because like, I guess this is probably his first like starring role, maybe. Um, let's see. So he has a small uh, Valley Girl. He's the star, right? Echo. Yeah. It's him and what's her name? Or this? Yeah. So yeah, fine. Valley Girl. Yeah, yeah. Valley Girl's his first, and then um, Birdie's Co. Right, like, or he's actually probably supporting compared to Mo- Modine, right? In that, or are they yeah, co? It's co, I would say. Okay, so then he has, the, so then he has, um, Birdie, and then it's this. So this is where he's got no co, though. There's nobody else. Right. I mean, everybody right. else is supporting. Right. He's he's the reason that you're buying a ticket to see this movie. Sure. So you know what's funny? Um, one of the things I love about Wikipedia is that they give you um how much the movie costs to make mm-hmm. the budget and then how much the box office. Yeah. So the budget for this movie was 7.7 million Canadian dollars. Right. Which I don't know what that is in 1986 terms, but probably still a decent amount of money. Motherfucking movie gross $275,000. Yeah. Cause who wanted it? Like who wanted this movie made? There's nobody clamoring. <clears throat> I know I'm getting all angry again. Like I was watching this movie last night thinking, who is sitting there, th- like, especially with that title crawl, like, before real sports, there was this. It's like, you might as well, like, I don't know, watching people, like, throwing a 
rocks against a wall or whatever like <laughs> skipping stones like at one point this was all man had to entertain himself you know like what the fuck like what a sell for a movie Good all right job. so for 1986 i just did that did it all so that would be 16.5 million in canadian um dollars today which equates to about 13.3 us million 13.3 million in us so and so yeah, so it made um whatever. I'm not doing the equivalency of the two hundred and seventy five thousand or whatever, but um far less. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean that's yeah. the funniest about um that, that that would be like a movie today being uh, thirteen million being spent on it in the US and it making less than a million. Like Right. And the funny thing is is like it didn't even cost it probably like how could it? I don't know where that budget came from. It had to be Christopher, Christopher had Plummer, be, um, Christopher Plummer, right? And then the boats themselves, because <laughs> they wreck a couple of those boats, and I'm sure they're not like super cheap. Charles Jarrett's a fucking Oscar nominee, man. Come on, he probably got some money. They probably also had to pay to like shut down these rivers so that they could pretend like it was 1906 or what the fuck ever, right? Um. Do you think they filmed on the Schuylkill? I don't know. I didn't look that much into it. I don't think well, so. Well, that's not listed anywhere. I mean, like I could probably maybe it's somewhere. I don't know. But I don't know how many people. There was like, there was nothing that identified it as being Nah. It, it filming took place in Quebec and Ontario, so they, they didn't actually film on the Schuylkill. They just called it that. Yeah. There's no local real local connection here other than the name, the yeah. idea. Right. The fact that it actually probably happened. Right. With uh, old sure. Nettie, Nettie Hanlon or whatever, right. Nettie Harlan. <sighs> so, yeah, right. so there's that. So you just finished this. <clears throat> I watched, I finished Sopranos like a month ago, like, and you just finished it. You told me over text. Um, so early this. Yeah. So um, you had never watched the last season before. So that's that was mostly all new to you, correct? absolutely um, brand new i had never seen okay. any of it okay and you don't see parts of season five right um uh 50 okay. i remembered of season five so i'm so that's an interesting perspective um because i i'm talking about like you know i can talk about re-watching it but like you haven't even seen those last couple seasons really like completely so um what did you think like 20 some years later like after it premieres like you know watching it um, I think it was unfairly maligned at the time, and I think it's actually a really fitting end for that show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. What I texted you this morning was that I don't understand why people could be confused or upset about that ending because ultimately, the idea is that just like Tony, you're the viewer, are never going to know when Tony's end is going to come. Right. And it could come any time. And it's like, so they show everybody always talks about members only jacket guy. Yeah. But they show the guy in the vest twice who's sitting by himself in a booth uh-huh. facing Tony. They show the two um black guys that come in. Yes. And are making like all kinds of noise and are over by the pastry counter. They show members only jacket guy. But they also take their time to show every other person in that restaurant at some point. And even though right. some of them don't seem like threatening, it's like that's the thing is that Tony 
for the rest of his life can never relax because whether it's the feds or some other crime boss like his life has the finite or whatever like his own ill health Mm -hmm. it has a finite you know i mean everybody's life is finite or whatever but he's in no control over when that life ends and so that's the thing is it's like it's showing you it's giving you all these possibilities and then not giving you the ending because you're not, it doesn't matter what the ending is because the ending is inevitable. Right. And I, and I and thought that was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I, and I responded to you as like, I, I don't think any reasonable person would disagree with you. Like regardless of what you think, because, because the debate at the time was more about, the cut to black and the camera angles and some of the things that happened throughout the season, like particularly bringing back from the first episode, I think of the sixth season, maybe um, the conversation with Bobby Bacala about um, what happens when you die, like, you know, um, and, and in bringing that back pointedly and what the next last episode, I think um, where Tony remembers it after Bobby dies. Um, Well, no, no, it's so I think it's even more subtle than that. I mean, there there is that that happens where he's remembering Bobby and yeah. he remembers that moment. There's the scene where um oh man, who gets murdered? Um one of the guys that's with uh Phil's crew gets killed in the restaurant and uh-huh. Silvio's talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then and there's, the, there's the where it all goes. All the audio drops yeah. out mm-hmm. and everything slows down. Right. And then they speed it back up because it's happening at the same time that the audio drops. Right. And it's all of those things are just like keying in on the fact that death happens, like in, especially in these people's worlds, without any kind of notice or. Sure. Like forewarning, and sometimes sure. you don't even know what's happening. Like when it's happening, right? And it, and, it, and, it, and it very much mimics like the um the very first season that brilliant scene um where Tony I can't remember does he have a glass of OJ or something like that? Like when when the attempt happens on his life in the first season, um when Junior tries to have him whacked and like it's a bottle of OJ, yeah, right, and it's like. The same thing of like everything going they they play music over top of it but like everything goes silent for him like you know when that happens and um everything slows down um but yeah that was what the debate was about i don't think any reasonable person and i there's a lot of unreasonable people out there i don't think any reasonable person would deny exactly what you're saying but it was really just an argument based about the camera work being hints to what the real answer is of whether he dies or not. I get what you're saying, that it doesn't matter overall, because whether he dies then or whether he dies later, it's that paranoia that you're always going to have. Um, it's been confirmed since by, I can't remember who, it wasn't David Chase himself, but it was um, one of the key directors, Alan Taylor maybe, or something like that. But um, that that he that the idea there was that, that, he's, that he gets killed. Um, like, it's been confirmed in the past year in the build-up to many saints in newark kind of um and i always assumed that was the case like like that 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 that's the end for tony um and but your point stands completely whether he dies or not like that paranoia that he would have to live with for the rest of his life is just that's the larger point i think um no matter what the other thing the other thing too that i was thinking today is that 
throughout that entire series, Tony is a guy that's always painting a different picture of who he is. Oh, yeah. To, like, basically cater it to the person that he's talking to yeah. and how he wants to feel about himself at the time. So, like, anytime that Tony is telling anybody anything, there's an element of fiction that seeps in and sometimes entire fiction but sometimes just like minor detail changes and sometimes it's really subtle like when you listen to things he says Mm -hmm. where he's just slightly changing the perspective of what happened in order to paint himself in a better light or make himself seem smarter Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's really brilliant that they purposefully have all of these men misuse words all the time because again, it's like they it's it's he's fabricated this persona around himself that other people have bought into when in reality he's just like a thug, you know, he's somebody sure. that doesn't care about anybody else other than himself and boy he's a narcissist he's a narcissistic sociopath. Right. So again, like that's another reason why I think the ending is is brilliant, because it's like this man that for your entire seven, eight years, whatever, that you've watched the show at this point, who's basically done the same thing to you because you root for Tony so many times mm-hmm. to like come out on top. And it's like, it's just done. And it's like, he doesn't get to write the ending right. in a way that makes it satisfactory for you or himself or anything. It's just like, that's it. <clears throat> well, I mean, And at the time where he's still, he's trying to like, He's just had another man like murdered violently. Yeah. And has lost two of his closest friends. I mean, really, even though he like mocks Bacala um all the time, like he's pretty close to that dude. Sure. Or at least like has some sympathy or pity for him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Sill is like the only guy that he really trusts in the entire world. Right. Like a hundred percent. Like he never I mean, how down on his luck is that he has to promote he never has an underboss in the entire thing. Like, right? And he has to promote Polly to, like, basically underboss of the family. Like, that's how, like, fucking severe the situation is. Um, fucking Polly Walnuts. Like, that fucking imbecile. in his face. Yeah. But, like, so, but that's the thing is that, like, even after all these terrible things have happened, he's going to sit in a diner with his family and eat fucking onion rings. Right. This this gluttonous sociopath is going to sit there and stuff his fucking face with onion rings, right? Right. And just, like, be a normal dad. Mm Mm-hmm. And talk about, like, what a good dad he is, basically. Right. And it's like... I don't know. I I think that... Well, here's the the thing is Bogdanovich's psychiatrist character, like, Melfi's psychiatrist, like, Bogdanovich's, like, his assessment that he talks about, like, reading about a study or whatever, but he's trying to, like, tell Melfi, like... Like this isn't helping him. Like you, like you're fucked up. Which was his premise the entire time, like throughout the whole series. Well, right, the he was right. Right, yeah. Right. You know. So um, I, it's, it's. I know that the, I think one of the things that's the problem with. I hate the term slippery slope, but it's a it's a loaded argument when you talk about people identifying with villains or antiheroes in media. Because a lot of people look at Tony Soprano and think like, especially if you're disenfranchised in any way or you hate your job or whatever, like, look at that life. Like, here's a guy that has sex with all these beautiful women, has all this money, 
can do whatever he wants, always gets away with it. Like, I think a lot of those people wanted to see some kind of resolution. And David Chase is Peter Bogdanovich and is saying, like, you're enabling this dude to basically be the hero that he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And he's not. And then you cut it off and like, that's it. Like, that's what you get. Yeah. You, You don't get an ending. You don't get to. Right. Ever you just it's just over and I sure I don't know and from a comedic perspective it's like they a lot of people had a bad reaction to that Sopranos finale just like a lot of people had a bad reaction to the Seinfeld finale where Larry David I think was a little bit more pointed um and uh more transparent in like what he was saying to the audience when he comes back and writes that finale which is these are terrible people and you've laughed at how they've made fun of people how they've mistreated people (laughs) and these people deserve to be in jail almost for just how terrible they truly are and people reacted real poorly to that and i think as a comedic like so people do not react well when the things they prop up as like people they like characters they like are suddenly like you're told right that's but on the you're you're kind of a piece of shit for liking this person. So on the other side of that, though, like to play devil's advocate to that point of view, you're not watching The Sopranos to educate yourself or really learn about like the intricacies of like organized crime in America. You're watching it to be entertained. Sure. And for the better part of eight years, that's all they've done is entertain you, even mm-hmm. though there's really great, like. All right, I'll, I'll come back to that. Even though there's really great things, like, in almost every single episode. Like, I think every single episode of that show, and I've never been the biggest Sopranos fan, but I've really come around on it after watching it this time. Like, Me too. Almost every Me single too. episode of that show is brilliantly crafted with very small, subtle things with each character mm-hmm. that inform not only that character's development, but, like, the the narrative of the show as a whole. And also are, like, show really good elements of social commentary and yeah political commentary and religious commentary like commentary on mental health and medicine in the united states like there's some really great stuff in that show but ultimately it's entertaining like you're entertained every single episode for the most part and there's very i can't think of a single episode that's like a dud where it's just like all right like let's get let's get through this like sure really boring sure there's always something that you have yeah. that holds your interest and propels you to want to watch, you know, the next episode. My favorite thing in the last two seasons to me um, is AJ. And mm-hmm. AJ's change from disaffected, um, like borderline comatose to so overly emotional that he can't control himself. And that motherfucker sitting there at the dinner, um, where what what is that? Is that the funeral for Bobby? Maybe, and he's like, "What rough beasts!" Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like the dude read like the Second Coming once, or right. heard the Second Coming. Yeah, uh-huh. in class, and then yeah. Carmela, Carmela, like, "What are they making these kids read in college?" Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's so fucking perfect that he's this. Yeah bleeding heart now almost like anti-tony in a lot of ways yeah well they're both bleeding hearts meadow is too yeah. like i mean 
Meadow, um, though, is a lot more, um, I don't know, mature in her sure. liberalism. Absolutely. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, um, that, that, that's the fascinating thing is like Tony is like, you know, what, what's, what's fascinating about like Tony, like, you know, in that is like, is like he's so conservative in his values in some ways and so like bordering on or over the over the line liberal in some of his other ways, but it has nothing to do with politics to him or social movements or advancement at all. It only has to do with what surrounds him and what benefits him. So it's like that whole like last season with Vito when the whole gay storyline where it's like Vito goes on the run because he's gay, Tony's completely willing to bring him back and deal with any flack for that because Vito's a good earner and it benefits him. And it's like, it has nothing to do with like necessarily Tony. I, I do think in the back of his mind, it's like he doesn't give a fuck about what the dude does in his free time. Like as right. long as he earns right but it benefits him and i think that's the key is it's always what benefits him um so it's like if this guy wasn't a good earner and he was gay like tony wouldn't wouldn't think like that i don't think um it'd be like oh fuck him (laughs) like let let phil do whatever he wants um so i think there's there's a couple of there's a couple of things early on where tony is very anti-gay though yes oh like prior to that yeah and i don't just mean like just in his language but like in his reactions to certain things like his 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 recoiling him and there's a scene it might be in season one maybe early season two where him and christopher are driving somewhere christopher is driving him and tony kind of broaches the subject of therapy a little bit and Christopher's like basically shoots it down to me, like, oh, what are you gay? And Tony's like anger and resentment at that, like, even the implication there, I don't know. Yep. Yep. It's it's really well done. It's so let, let let me go a little bit more macro with those last couple seasons. Like, um, I want to broaden this out a little bit. Those last two seasons are looked down upon compared to the other seasons like you know um like the the narrative is that while it's always largely entertaining that the show from season one maybe peaking in season two and then kind of like is good but still kind of like you know goes downhill a little bit through season three four five and six like do you having just watched like all of season five and now all of season six agree with that assessment no okay i i think 100 percent that it changes it changes what it is after season two Mm -hmm. like pretty much up to season two it's just a really well done but quirky look at like what i think most people think of as like the mafia or whatever and then it becomes more about like i mean it just it it turns into like an examination of the family dynamic and whether or not someone can be a good person while still doing awful things Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's necessarily tony soprano 
I think it's more, I, I think after season two, it's more about Carmella and Meadow and AJ and all the people around Tony Soprano that allow Tony Soprano to be who he is and reap the benefits of him being that. I think the question is, is Carmella Soprano a good person? Can she be a good person because she tacitly condones every single thing he does? Or is Meadow a good person knowing what her father is and using that largesse to go out and like achieve her dreams? Like, can she still be a good person? And I think that even Melfi, and I think that Melfi is the only one you really get the answer on. Mm-hmm. because Melfi's the only one that stands up to him and says, I'm not taking your money anymore. There's no more therapy. We're done. Right. She's the only one that comes out of it. Like still with any kind of her soul intact. Yeah. Whereas like I, I was, I was watching, I can't remember. It's, it's one of the last couple episodes and Carmela like makes this face at something. You know what it is? It's during the whole thing where AJ's dating um, Blanca, the um, Puerto uh-huh. Rican uh-huh. mother, where Carmela just makes this face, and it's like exactly Tony Soprano's face, and she's channeling hmm. like all his racism and yeah, like thick-headedness and whatever you want to call it, like ingrained like pseudo-nationalism. Yeah, And despite everything she says about, like, she's a good person and she's just trying to raise her family, mm-hmm. like, she's just as much of a gangster at heart as her husband is and is one of the reasons why he's been able to be as successful as he has been is because she supports him and everything. Right. So I think that's where the it turns. And it doesn't, like, obviously, Tony's always your central focus. But I think it's always important with those people that kind of like, like Christopher and adriana and all these people that come to these terrible ends because of their association with tony soprano because he's never a good person and he's never painted as a good person and every time he does something that he can he can occasionally be a likable person well he's charming sure but every time he's even a slight bit altruistic there's a knife underneath it right like there's a hook Mm -hmm. that's like pulling a person in that he can take advantage of Yes. If not then, like sometime down the road. Right. Like the whole thing with him having Artie move in with him, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. like all that stuff with Artie, it's it's not about, you know, him being friends with Artie or Artie's his oldest friend. It's about I need to keep this guy close so I can continue to eat dinner for free. Yes. And go to his restaurant and meet with my cronies in his restaurant without fear of being like listened to. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. I mean, it's and so is Artie Buco. Like Mm-hmm. <clears throat> has all these like things he has this huge character arc but is he a good person because ultimately he allows it to happen mm-hmm. yeah he lets himself be snowballed because he wants to fuck the hungarian right hostess right. you know i mean like how good of a person is Artie buka sure um i was i was trying to think is because uh, i was thinking about this like does anyone is anyone good in the show outside of melfi who i think melfi is like legitimately a good person and i think the person that honestly comes the closest to not being good but at least being like acceptable is paulie because paulie's <laughs> never anything but what paulie is like he's almost like an innocent in the sense that he's just always himself there's never any like real subterfuge with paulie you know, instead of like going behind your back and like sneaking around, he just drives around in your lawn and destroys your. 
Holy let me let me ask you this: Does Paulie have the best looks in the entire show? Oh yeah, like, like that best means- like facials, like yeah, basically like you know because the, the 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 episode with the Russian um, Pine Barons, mm-hmm. the end of the episode when like Tony's basically like fucking with him like at the end and like he like does like this like little like look out the side of the window like and just like stare thing. It is the most Joker look I've ever seen in my entire life. Like that he gives. Like, um, it's like if somebody got one up on the Joker and like he just like was just like glaring like out the window. It's like a Jack Torrance staring out the window type thing. It is brilliant, brilliant. Like with that character, I always think of Paulie as being confused, impotent, unbridled rage, mm. or barely, barely contained rage. Yeah. Like he doesn't quite know what's going on. He doesn't quite know what to do about it. He knows it's making him really mad. And he's got nowhere to go. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so let me let me ask you this real quick. Um I wanna this is just gonna be the Sopranos because we're never gonna talk about the Sopranos probably on the podcast. So it's like I I just wanna get like a lot of this out there. How do you feel about the Tony Blunt? Uh, that is, I think, probably considered the weakest season of season five overall from from what I understand is and, and largely it has to do with the overall storyline, not Buscemi, not the performance, like nothing like that, but just the overall Tony Blundetto storyline. How do you feel about the way that plays out? Like, do you do you consider that the worst season, do you think, like if you estimate it? I think there's some fine stuff in that season. Sure. I think there's some really good stuff with Tony Blundetto. Yeah. The thing that I don't understand is that it never makes any legitimate sense as to why Tony's protecting him. Especially because Tony's so willing to give up so many people that are related to him or close to him. Or, yeah, I mean, he almost or killed his mother yeah. at one point. Sure. Right. So here's a guy that's not earning him any money at, at, the, at that point who's kind of gone off the reservation, who's causing him all kinds grief and all he has to do is give him up but at the same time it's like it's not his idea to give him up it's what um johnny sack and phil want right so he's being contrary until he can't be contrary any longer because it's costing him too much and then he just goes and kills him right i do, do, you, think, do you think do you think that is the moment that like Look, Tony's never redeemable at all throughout the entire thing, but as a character. So here's my reaction to it, just very briefly, because I'm more interested in what you have to say, having not watched his last couple seasons. But like, it feels to me like when I when I started watching season six, like I remember how I felt about it when I was, you know, 27 versus now rewatching it. And the the last season which is like 20 episodes or whatever whatever it is like made me fucking sick to my stomach the longer it went on um like it it re- i was re- like repelled like revulsed like by like the entire thing like the longer it went on and just how disgusting tony is and it feels like him killing his cousin is like is in that last episode is like the thing that like once he does that like unapologetically and so cowardly like his own relative that it's like once season six starts it's like i'm pretty anti-tony at that point and then it's almost like it just gets worse throughout the entire season to where it's like 
I remember telling you, like texting you, like while I was watching, it's like, dude, I can't, like, this is, I should not be drinking while I'm watching this, like late at night, because like this is making me like seriously, like not only depressed, but like just sick to my stomach, um, watching all this happen. So not drinking and watching it for the first time, were you like repulsed by the last season? So there's actually a moment much earlier than that where I think Tony becomes unredeemable and I okay. really started to look at him differently. Okay. Um, and it is the scene where this might be season four, I guess this happens in mm-hmm. the scene where Tony and Adriana are in her back office mm. and he's getting ready to basically fuck her. And yeah. the only thing that stops him is somebody like comes in the room and then he frames that as him being noble and deciding not to have sex with his basically his son's fiance and tries yes. to paint it like, oh, well, to Melfi, I could have, but I didn't. Like, you know, that's me showing growth, even though what it is is just circumstance. Right. And then him turning that around to try and force the situation again by, hey, let's go get blow down in Dover alone when christopher's like in the south or whatever knowing full well that the end result of that with them doing cocaine together is that he's going to fuck her right so he's given himself the out of not doing it through no you know purpose of his own just so he can do it again like later and it's like so because christopher loves that man so much and like she looks up to him so much and and hates him but and hates him to some degree too. Yeah, he goes he goes back and forth, but at right. the same time, it's like he hates him only because Tony doesn't return his love in the same way that sure he wants his love returned. I mean, there's a lot of like whatever complexity there. Sure, but it's the same with um Adriana because she loves him like a father too, but because she's also so fucked up because of like her mother and her life, that's how she knows to like show affection for him. Even though she says in the previous episode, like, oh, God, no, like, I would never have sex with him. But you can tell that, like, she would and that he would take advantage of that. And it's just also disgusting. And then to have her almost get killed by Christopher because of it. I don't know. Like, there's so much there that I just feel like to me, that's the moment where it's like, all right. There's nothing redeemable about this man. Like, if he's willing to stoop to that level, then right like everything else is just kind of like unsurprising because he's so so awful of a human being yeah and yet you still root for him sometimes you know like sure there's still times like even in those last three seasons where you're like man tony like you need to kill phil leotardo or you need to kill sure butch especially butch like oh my god i wanted to see tony kill butch so bad (laughs) but um never happened Um, okay so last kind of thing that i have a couple two two last questions do you think how how differently do you think that show would have played out had nancy marchand not died so you and i talked about this off air and i think you're exactly right when you say this i think that you would have seen the junior stuff that happened in seasons four five and six Mm -hmm. you would have seen that play out in seasons three four and five with her where it would have been her gradually she probably would have been the one that shot tony yes um it would have gradually they would have something else would have happened with junior but all that stuff would have been like 
focused around her because that's the whole thing is that she's faking the dementia except for there's a couple of like really subtle scenes Mm -hmm. where the way that um nancy marchand like plays that role you can tell that she's legitimately confused about what's happening around her and i think that would have been the subtle like decay of that mind over the course of you know those few seasons to where tony tony can't like shun his mother anymore and has to take care of her but his mother's like beyond the point of being able to be helped um but i mean i think that they it's it works out so well and like that junior stuff Mm -hmm. in the last season is so it's not heartbreaking because junior is such a like (laughs) well you and you hate junior right like as a character yeah I, i it's one of the most brilliant performances on the show because he's so yeah he's such a small petty man like he's not even a sociopath he's just a child and he's like a weak like sad child that never had the chance to be like the guy because it was always his dad or his brother and then his nephew you know and he's always got do do you understand now why though i defend that decision as bad as that prequel movie was like why i defend the decision to to have Junior be the one that actually is behind Dicky Maltesanti's death, like I'm fine with it. I get it. I just don't like. I don't. I wouldn't mind it if I thought the movie was better. I think sure. that, that movie was so bad yeah. that it really kind of ruins any good that it does to like edify you, I guess, about like what's happening, like why things have happened in the modern day that you see in The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, as in theory, like, I think it's cool, but in reality, I think it's just kind of, yeah, like the rest of that movie. I just hate the execution, I guess that's the best way. Um, what do you think your favorite thing is in The Sopranos? Like, whether it's an episode, a scene, like, what, what do you think after you're watching that's your favorite? And, and I, I also lastly want you to talk about your favorite villain um because i thought that was interesting as well when we were texting each other but you can do this Um, anywhere you want honestly maybe my favorite thing in that entire series is the focus on food and the importance of food in relation to the dynamic of like interpersonal relationships and familial relationships and business dealings like if you think about almost every single important scene in that movie it's somehow connected either directly or like in a tertiary way to a scene around it to someone eating something or drinking something or consuming something Mm -hmm. like it's all about the consumption of things and i love the fact that like it's almost like and i don't want to say shitting on but it's almost a mockery of those of people that are like Menagat and Gabagool and all that shit. Like where half of those guys don't even know like what they're saying, you know, that my favorite, one of my favorite episodes is the episode where Tony and Polly go to Italy and meet Furio and his um, Italian cousin for the first time. Yeah. Or the only time with the cousin, but you know, uh-huh. they go to Italy. Sure. And like Polly, who's this, up to this point has been portrayed as this like really like classic italian you know 
Jersey Italian tough guy that's got all these roots in the old country. And the dude has no idea about anything that happens in the place where he's from. Like mm-hmm. no connection to the culture, no connection to the cuisine, nothing. And it's like, it's, it's amazing how much they, on one hand, like show you these sides of these people that are impressive or funny or like, you know, get you to root for them and are constantly showing you how false like all those things are it's like how little any of that stuff is real and how really these guys are just cold-hearted bloodthirsty criminals basically Mm -hmm. like complete narcissistic sociopaths and it's it's amazing like it's a brilliant um yeah i i really really like it a lot so what's your favorite episode out of the entire thing is it pine barons Nah. Huh? I like I I I like Five Marins a lot. Yeah. Um. Hmm. That's really hard. It is. There's so there's so many really good episodes. Um. Five Marins definitely one of the funniest. Five Marins is like the. It's so self contained. I mean, it, it's always hard because like Christopher's episode is jumping around to like sure things, but it's so self-contained with just Paulie and Christopher, who were probably the two guys that idolize Tony the most and get the least back from him. Right. And I think that's like Yeah, and it's like it's like one of their only bottle episodes, right? Like I mean, like that they ever do. <clears throat> I don't I don't know. I don't know if I can give you a favorite episode. Yeah. Um, my favorite so I, villain. Who who did I tell you my favorite villain was? You said it was Phil Leotardo. I do like Phil Leotardo a lot. Like I think because because I think uh, Richie Richie April is my favorite. Like in season two, like I love the acting that he does. Like in that role, I love like the kind of like blue collar, like rugged self-entitled nature of that character um i love the sexual hang-ups and idiosyncrasies like of him fucking holding a loaded gun to (laughs) janice's head while he's fucking her like i i I love all that stuff um but you liked phil i think because he was a little more refined right so here's here's my answer to that like if you think about the major villains in the in the series, it's Richie April, um, Ralphie, and then Phil, right, taking over for for Johnny Sack. Like those sure. are really like the three guys that are Tony's nemesis. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see Richie and Ralphie killed so bad, mm-hmm. like throughout the seasons they were on. Like I really wanted them to die. And especially Ralphie. Like, there's so many times where you just want to see somebody shoot Ralphie in the yes. fucking face. Yes. I wanted Phil to get away with it. Like, I really wanted Phil to take over that New Jersey team and, like, or crew or whatever and, and become this. Because he's. Everything that he does makes sense from, like, a business standpoint, except for being so. 
conventional, like, like, traditional, or whatever. Yeah, but like that idealism almost, and I know that that's not the right word considering what we're talking about, but he is like super idealistic because he's like, if we don't have our rules, what do we have? Like, what is this thing without us respecting our traditions? And that's what he hates is that Tony is so fucking selfish that he has no respect for any tradition. Right. Like he does as long as it suits his purpose. And then as soon as it doesn't suit his purpose, you know, he'll kill somebody or he'll completely change track or he'll pretend like something else was something was someone else's fault and that he was you know clean for, i don't know it's just yeah yeah um, okay okay yeah. here's here's another point where like you just can never come back from tony and th- this happens late in season six him pointing out that did you see the way that tree branch mangled you should have seen the way that tree branch mangled that car seat in the back seat that baby would have been obliterated. Mm-hmm. It's like he can't just like live with the idea that he did something horrible to save a child. He has to continuously look for someone to validate. Oh yeah, that would have been awful. Like yeah, well, he's, because he, well because he's trying to validate it to himself. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, so look, I have I, I have so many probably questions if we talked about it more but it's like why do you think he kills christopher because that's the first time you've seen it like in like actually watching it you that's the first time you've seen it what was your reaction like not only to him killing christopher i know you knew it happened but it's like what's your reaction to it and why do you think he did it i think he kills christopher because he can't kill aj and Mm -hmm. he sees i think that's exactly right yes Yep. He sees he sees the same weakness mm-hmm. in Christopher and his addictions and his twelve step program. Yes, that he sees in AJ, but where he can't do anything to AJ because that's his child. Yeah, Christopher is somebody that he can basically use as like a proxy to. Yes, <clears throat> and that's why he's like always he's seeking that justification both in himself because he yes. knows. Yeah. I mean cuz he there's that there's that scene when they're they're going to the mattresses where um or going to ground I guess is what they call it where he pulls AJ out of bed and slams him on the floor and like knocks all of his shit over and is basically like you disgust me get out now like I'm trying to whatever yeah and it's like he looks in that back seat he's not going around there to help Christopher and he's aghast, I think, at the idea that Christopher would ever suggest that Tony sacrifice himself to make sure that Christopher doesn't get in trouble for, you know, like driving under the influence. And he's just like, he looks at that car seat and that's his excuse. And then he's, you know, because he's cold about it. There's no tears. There's no sadness. Oh, no, not at all. And don't you think like looking at the car seat is like, yes, it's it's justification. But also think about it. It means child. Right. Like, you know, and it's like all of it gets tied in together. And he kills Christopher because he can't kill AJ. Yeah, because AJ's like, like Meadow is Meadow is his child. Yes. Meadow is the one that like is strong and smart and savvy right and stands up to carmela like the most effectively mm-hmm. and goes out and lives her own life and aj is just this failure that he sees as this mama's boy 
right and this weakling you know that and he doesn't even know about aj like using the soprano name to yeah like help intimidate people or get what he wants or sleep with you know mess with girls or whatever sure but it's like even though he says like i don't want you in the family business he knows that he could never aj could never take over for him sure sure okay so i'm gonna make one challenge to you and i rarely do this is like having rewatched the sopranos now and fouling finding some sort of like you know because i i agree it's a better show like i don't because you weren't watching at the end of the time like one of the reasons so many people were disappointed was because they they thought that the war with new jersey was going to be a large storyline and it just kept getting held off and held off and held off until like what the last five episodes maybe three episodes um of that uh, show i mean it's bubbling up it's bubbling seasons. bubbling bubbling like, but it's like they thought the like the whole last season or like the sorry the second half of the last season like of season six was going to be new york and new jersey going to war um and it just still keeps bubbling bubbling but that was never what that show was about and it's like rewatching it again without any of those expectations it's like it's a brilliant damn show if you're just looking at it as character studies and that's it um and without those expectations of the time period of people talking online like you know like oh this is what i expect will happen like like it's a different show i felt the same way about lost like after the expectation was removed rewatching it again i i appreciated the last season much better um and i felt the same way about the sopranos like once any expectation was removed the last seasons were much better than i thought um yeah and i i I guess like knowing that there was not going to be the big new jersey new york war mm -hmm. because like you and i have talked about this shit for years at this point yeah golfing on um i didn't care right and honestly i think that it again i i think that what matters is that it's it's the showrunners subtly like shitting on these people in some way Mm -hmm. and so it's like what does new york have like four old men sure what does new jersey have like three or four old men and a couple of dudes that like are just rotating in because sure yeah we're like next up or whatever i mean and that's the thing is like the war isn't a war there's no like army there's just a bunch of like these old assholes that control you know some organized crime in in the area and like like what kind of war could you have you know they're just phil leotardo for all his like brass and whatever he just gets shot in the head and gets his head rolled over sure Sure. And that's sure. the thing is make it a joke. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Yeah. Right. And I think okay. that's entirely the point is yeah. trying to drain the mystique out of these yeah. agreed. These gangsters in a subtle way while still providing an entertaining gangster yeah. you know, yeah. story. I agree. Um, my challenge to you is this. I know that you only watched, I think, through the second season. I want you to watch Mad Men and talk to me about it at some point like uh, all right because i if you can appreciate 
The Sopranos. I think there's less humor at times, but it's like if you can appreciate The Sopranos, I think if you worked your way through, because some of the best Mad Men stuff is way after you watched. Like it's like way after you stopped watching, and like as a character study, like I am, I really for many years have wanted to talk to you about the characters of that show um and how they progress through what ends up being all right all right all right 13 13 years almost i think i i think um and yes i i want you to watch that motherfucker finally and talk to me about it tired you're tired no it makes me tired when i watch it it's like there's so many goddamn words and like talking there's, there's and so just... much words in the sopranos or the wire or fucking deadwood i mean deadwood has the most words i think like you, you yeah, like that show it's the best words it is it's it really is some of the best words like the wire and deadwood had the best words um i think i really hate that time period in american culture that's interesting yeah from like the late 50s early 60s through what the 70s Mad Men goes into yeah 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 Mm-hmm. yeah like, i i, oh I, I want to say it's like 58 through 71 or something like that maybe like um <sighs> i'll watch it yeah i got nothing going on in my life so right um okay cool all right so i hope everyone enjoyed the bait and switch um tonight because <laughs> i think I, did, spent... I didn't know it was coming yeah i i <laughs> i um I didn't either, honestly. I I did it on the fly, but um, we probably talked about the Sopranos more than we talked about um Ned Hanlon and Charles Jarrett and Nick Cage. But um, so so when I copy and pasted the filmography from Wikipedia, like somehow yeah. Ned Hanlon and Charles Jarrett got switched up. So I've always thought Ned Hanlon was the director of that movie until tonight when you told me like that's the character and i was like what and i actually clicked on the movie and then i saw oh that would be um that'd be uh that'd be some trick it would be yeah and um, rises from the grave to direct to direct the Nick movie cage about his playing own himself life. right yeah. <laughs> he cast the cage you're getting it all wrong <laughs> put your shirt back on I don't know. I don't know what that voice is. You know, you know who's not going to appreciate this episode is Orion. No, not at all. Um, he was so sorry. happy with the Cotton Club episode. He was saying that it was the funniest one. He was. He's not going to appreciate this whatsoever. Um, this one, this one was so funny. I mean, I guess like up to a point, but then it um. The day we talk about Twin Peaks, maybe you'll appreciate it, like on an episode. But um, <clears throat> but look, here's the thing. Unless we come up with a new idea for next year, like this, like auxiliary conversation is all done. Like it's all done. Like it's over. Like, and I don't remember my dream still, so I have no idea what we do next year. Um, I'm gonna figure something out. I got you. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good night. Have a good evening. <laughs>